Moving along in the book of Genesis, as we're going through the story of Abraham, we come to chapter 16. Chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abraham, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abraham agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abraham had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. And he slept with her, slept with her, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that, she, that was beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress, submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward his brothers. She gave, his name to the, she gave this name to the, that the Lord had spoke to her. She, I'm sorry, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son that she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. The word of the Lord. <clears throat> the book of Hebrews celebrates Abraham as, and Sarah as some of the heroes of faith, heroes of faith. The fact is, as we read through the story of Abraham, the reality is a good bit less shiny and wonderful. You can see that even before we get to this story. A few chapters before this one, Abraham and Sarah went to Egypt because there was famine in the land. And while there, Abraham finds out that Pharaoh has taken a liking to Sarah, his wife. It says that in Genesis that she was very, very beautiful. 
And the heroic Abraham gets scared and passes his wife off as his sister. Yeah, nice, huh? Pharaoh takes her into his harem and pays off Abraham with some flocks and herds. In the end, God has to rescue Sarah with the plague on Pharaoh's palace. Not only that, but Abraham is a slow learner. He does the very same thing with his wife sometime later to another king. So it's abundantly clear that Abraham is no great hero and that God's covenant family is pretty dysfunctional. So it's just a bit unfair that Hagar often gets pictured as the bad guy in this story. She's an unwelcome intruder into the plans and purposes of God because they revolve around Abraham and Sarah and his covenant with them. So she complicates the story of God's covenant of grace. So it's easy to overlook her, but the Bible won't let us. The Bible does not tell the story of covenant history like some simple heroic tale. It's full of strange twists and turns and people and dysfunctional families that don't seem to fit. So who is Hagar? Hagar is a slave in the service of Sarah. She is owned by her mistress. There's no way to perfume this fact, even if it was a common institution in the culture of that day. Sarah probably picked her up in Egypt when she was in Pharaoh's household and took her off back to Canaan to be her slave. So that's Hagar, a woman, a slave, an Egyptian, an African. So how does this Egyptian slave come to figure in the great story of God's covenant promises to Abraham and Sarah? Well, the childless Sarah finally decides that she has to do something. Whatever we might think of the place of women within that culture, it's very clear that in this story, Sarah is the main actor. She's the one that takes control. Yes, God has promised that Abraham, that, uh, to Abraham that he will make of him a great nation, but no one ever said exactly how and time is running out. So, Sarah chooses Hagar as a surrogate mother for the promised child. And Sarah sounds really quite pious about it. She was just trying to make the best of a tough situation. So she says, the Lord has prevented me from having children, so have sex with my slave girl. It may be that I will obtain children by her. Notice the language. Hagar, the slave, presented a convenient womb under the control of Abraham and Sarah. Now, it's common to approach these Old Testament stories as sort of moral lessons. What's the lesson here, boys and girls? Well, it's very clear. Abraham and Sarah are jumping ahead of God. They should have waited for the promised child, but they didn't. They tried to do it themselves. And look what happens. The whole family is messed up. If only they had patiently waited in faith and followed God's will, everything would turn out okay. That's the typical 
moral story that's been rehearsed over and over in the church. Is that what this story is all about? To give us a neat moral lesson. Well, I tell you, this story is not all that neat. Like many of these Old Testament stories, they are not so much meant to give us a moral lesson. They are meant to tell us about God, who God is, and what God is all about in the world. The moral lesson approach means you really don't have to pay all that much attention to Hagar. Hagar is a mistake, after all. She's a throwaway character in the interests of the moral truth. But if you read the story on its own terms, you study it on the ground rather than from our 4,000-year historic perch, it's not quite so crisp and clear. Now, keep in mind that the only recorded promise Abraham has heard up to this point is that a child will be born of his own flesh and blood. Up to this point, God has not specifically told him that Sarah is going to be the mother. Well, that doesn't come until 10 years after Ishmael is born, well after Sarah's prime childbearing years. So, looking at things from the ground level, that's where Sarah is, Sarah is not contradicting God's promise at all. She says, God has made me barren. There's a problem here, so let's find a way around the problem. So Abraham and Sarah are stumbling along trying to figure out some way to realize the promise that God has made, and God wasn't showing up every day to tell them what to do. God comes around about every 15 years or so. They did the best they could. As we struggle in life with the decisions that we have to make or the actions that we take day by day, God seldom tells us exactly what to do. God's will is not always abundantly clear. Sometimes we have to make difficult decisions, and sometimes they turn out well, and sometimes in retro retrospect they turn out to be a detour or even a bad mistake. Christians are sometimes told that we ought to find God's plan for our life, as though there's this perfectly straight path that leads to God's perfect will. You get off the track, and it will lead to disaster and everlasting regret. The Bible seems to have another message. It's most important about our what's most important about our lives is not what we are doing any given moment or where we are or what we are, but it's what we are becoming. Yes, we make mistakes, we sin, we live with some, the sometimes painful results of our mistakes and our sins. Abraham and Sarah, like the rest of us, are on a journey with lots of twists and turns. But God can make sense even out of the twists and turns of our life. The point is that we need to keep turning back to God in trust in His promises. In other words, in the long run, God's purpose through it all is to form us in the character of Christ, who is the one true human being. Well, you can almost see it coming. Hagar, the real human, suddenly 
appears in place of Hagar, the slave commodity. As soon as she becomes pregnant by Abraham, Hagar, the nobody, suddenly realizes that she is now somebody. She's no longer merely a slave. She is about to be the mother of Abraham's sole heir. Her womb, which Abraham and Sarah owns, works. Sarah's doesn't. It's hard to blame her grin of contempt when she glances at Sarah, barren old Sarah, burning with painful jealousy, and Hagar finally has her comeuppance in the world. But trouble was brewing. As it says in the book of Proverbs, one of the four things under the sun in which the earth trembles is a maid who succeeds her mistress. Still, Sarah has all the power, and she knows how to use it. And she demands Abraham bring justice back to the household, to which, which to her eyes is teetering on anarchy. Abraham understands the realities of the struggles in his own tent, and he did his duty. He demotes Hagar by placing her back under Hagar's complete control, and Hagar, who had soared so high, now becomes an object of Sarah's abuse and scorn. And in the end, pregnant Hagar runs away. She has some pride too, after all. Instead of letting mean old Sarah have her child, she will keep the child and run away in the wilderness. Of course, all this is happening now on a purely human plane, with human decisions and their messed up results. But then something really wonderful happens. Hagar has made her way about 70 miles to the border of Egypt, her homeland. She's destitute, homeless, doesn't have strength to go on. And suddenly God, who hasn't shown up for years, enters the picture once more. And it's not in the tents of Abraham, but it's out there in the wilderness with a slave who's running away. We have no indication that Abraham lifted a finger to go after Hagar, but it's as though heaven sends out a search party. Listen to those wonderful, amazing words. The angel of the Lord found her. Now, why should God care? This was not God's plan, after all. Ishmael is not going to be the child of promise. One might think that this is, after all, quite a convenient way to get these two interlopers out of the way, right? Then we can get back to business. But God does care. God hears the cries of Hagar. God hears the cries of the oppressed, even when his own people oppress them. Amazing things happen to Hagar. Hagar is the first of very few people in the Bible who receive a visit from this mysterious angel of the Lord, who seems to be the Lord's presence itself, the one who led Israel through the wilderness, the one who bucks up Joshua before the battle of Jericho. And notice something else very important. Here, for the first time in the whole story, Hagar gets a name. Abram and Sarah refer to her as that slave girl. 
The angel of the Lord calls her Hagar. We know her name because God called it. Hagar is even the first theologian in the Bible. What do theologians do? They discern who God is and what God does, right? Well, she knows that she's deal, who she's dealing with, and so she names this angel of the Lord and says, You are El Roy, the God who hears. So Hagar, I'm sorry, the God who sees. Hagar, the mistake, the problem that we don't need in the story of the covenant is the one to whom God now pays special attention. Not only that, but God makes an enormous promise to Hagar and to her unborn child. His descendants will become a great nation, though he will be a wild donkey of a man, whatever that means. The whole promise sounds quite similar in a way to the promise given to Abraham himself. So Hagar eventually returns to the household as the angel told her to do, and she bears this strapping boy, Ishmael, who she names, as the angel said, God hears. She can return to the tents of oppression now because she too has a future. She too has God's promise, just like Abraham and Sarah. It's not the same future, it's not the same promise, but it's a good one. We know that in the Bible, the real continuing story of the covenant goes through Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, and so forth. But what about Ishmael and Hagar? They too have a promise. They too are part of God's plan. Hagar is many things to many people. It really depends on who's telling the story in a lot of ways. To the powerful, to the blessed people, Hagar is a stumbling block, an intruder, a hindrance. But in a society where most of the suffering most of the poverty, most of the abuse falls on women and children. In a place where vulnerable people struggle every day for survival and recognition, there's a different story. They read of a God who hears their suffering, who sees them and hears their cries. Maybe it's time for us to stop reading this story only from the perspective of the covenant people the owners, the insiders. Maybe it's time to look at the story from the perspective of those who have walked in Hagar's shoes. The exploited maid, the African mother struggling to feed her children, the illegal alien, the runaway girl, the unwed mother, the struggling gay teenager, the single parent, the homeless bag lady. We are surrounded by modern day Hagar's. What's their story? God hears, God sees, God cares about all the Hagars too. God has not exclusively committed himself to Abraham and Sarah. God is deeply involved with the unchosen as well as with the chosen. Choosing one does not mean rejecting the other. God's scope of grace is wider than we imagine. And we can see this played out, where else? In Jesus' ministry. Remember one hot day, to the astonishment of his disciples, he stops to get a drink 
from a woman at a well, despised, mixed race, religiously confused Samaritan who's gone through five husbands and who ends up being the first evangelist. Jesus seems to pay more attention to the outsiders than the insiders. It's the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the maligned, the marginalized who attract his attention. Whenever we see the church excluding people, maybe we ought to remember Hagar. Maybe we ought to remember the four real outsiders in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, Rahab, Tamar, Ruth, Bathsheba, and the Samaritans and Gentiles and lepers and tax collectors. Maybe we ought to realize that God's story is a lot more about inclusion than about exclusion. When God graciously elects His chosen people, He doesn't stop there. In choosing and calling Abraham, God made His purpose clear. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All. God is not out to create an exclusive club, but an inclusive community that exhibits the abundance of His grace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we, we read this story and we see Hagar, the uppity slave, banished to the wilderness, dying and alone. And you send the angel of the Lord to see her and to hear her and to give her a promise and a blessing. So grant us, Lord, to see the Hagars that are around us, maybe the Hagars that are in us, and to know that you love us too because your embrace is wide and deep. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.